the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome into another Saturday of Woods and Water, South Carolina. Glad you could be here with us. Pretty, pretty cool day on the show today. Uh, I met my next guest back in 17 at the uh, National Deer Alliance Conference in Austin, Texas. We talked about doing this radio show together. Uh, ran into him again last year at ICAST and said, hey, we need to do a show together. I think somewhere in between their land you had pneumonia, didn't you? I did. I uh, I got pretty sick. Yeah, it was not great. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm just trying to explain to everybody why we haven't done this sooner. But my my guest today is President and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Land Tony. Land, thanks for taking a few minutes to be on the show. Oh, Roger, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, good things take time, and and this is one of those things that has just taken us a little longer. But if you know anything about backcountry hunters and anglers, and I hope you do, if you don't. We're actually, I think we've got 331 people on a Facebook group now in South Carolina trying to get a chapter started here. And um, I asked Land to come on and kind of do a, a real introduction to BHA, to let us know what it's about, what their causes are, some of the things they stand for, and just some of the fun things they do. Because you think, And I really hate I didn't make the rendezvous, and it looks like you guys had a great time out there. Yeah, it was a hoot for sure. <laughs> well, take just a moment. Tell us who is Land Tony, and how in the world did you end up as president and CEO <laughs> of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers? Oh man, you're opening up a can of worms. So uh, do that every week. Go so ahead. President, yeah, so president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I've been on this job for six years now. Um, I've got I'm a fifth generation Montanan. I grew up hunting and fishing. Uh, my dad and mom got me out into the woods and on the water. You know. When I was a young kid, uh, my father was and my mom were the first full-time conservation lobbyists at the state legislature here in Montana. Uh, so trying to work at the state legislative level to pass you know things that mattered to hunting and fishing, conservation in general. Um, and my dad went to law school and became the first lawyer of the Elk Foundation yep. um, when they first started in 1985. So I've had conservation kind of in my blood for a long time. Uh, my father passed away when I was 20. And, and so that left this huge hole in my life. And I think at that point, you know, I was screwing around and that got me, um, really to kind of put my head on straight and ended up going to school and getting a wildlife biology degree. And then fresh out of school, I uh, started volunteering for the Pluto Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which right. was at that point being run by the same guy, uh, Bob Munson, who had helped start the Art Foundation. So I started there as a volunteer, uh, working to a part-time job and a full-time job. And, you know, now, 20 years later, I'm kind of doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, before I got here, I was working for the National Wildlife Federation, running all their kind of national sportsman's programs, uh, working on a particular campaign down in Louisiana, around the Mississippi River Delta. Um, but, you know, I took this job six years ago, and I really haven't looked back and couldn't be proud of kind of the folks that I get to work with, both uh, volunteers and staff in this great organization. Yeah, it's uh, and it's a, it's a, 
it's an organization that is growing by leaps and bounds. It has. You know, when I first took over six years ago, just last month, we had about 1,000 members, and uh, today we have 37,000 members. So it's been absolute kind of uh, you know, explosive growth. And you know, I think that's really you know, gets down to you know, why we were formed in this place. You know, we were formed around a, a campfire in Oregon in 2004. And you know, I don't know about you, Roger, but I've solved the world problems you know, around a campfire <laughs> before. And, yeah. and you wake up in the morning and they're there again, right? But yes. um, this, one, this one kind of stuck. And it really those folks, those first seven that were around that campfire, they looked at you know, the Elk Foundation, the Mule Deer Foundation, Child Limited, all these different organizations that are doing really good work, uh-huh. but nobody was really focused on public lands and public waters. And so you know, right then and there, they decided they needed to form this organization. And, um, you know, the idea of making sure that you have access to public lands and waters and then the uh, fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. And you know, those are pretty simple kind of uh, things, and I think what sets us apart you know, from the rest of the world when it comes to our public lands and our opportunities that come with them. Um, but really that's like, kind of like the simple piece, and then you know, from there I can get into more detail on, on really kind of what we do. But that's really in general, you know, making sure you have access to public lands and waters and then the fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. And you're exactly right about a campfire. You will, people will discuss things around a campfire, that normally you wouldn't talk about anywhere else, you know? Some really good ideas come around a campfire, too. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I mean, since that first campfire was built, they probably were sitting around, you know, telling stories and, um, you know, plotting and scheming on how to make life better. And I think, you know, that's what you do when you're late at night staring at those coals. It just gives you time to be contemplative. And, again, sometimes you don't solve all the world problems, and when you wake up, they're still there, but uh, this one in particular stuck. I gotcha. Well, real quick, because we got about, I don't know, we got about four and a half minutes left in this segment. Give us the mission of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I mean, it's you've touched on a little bit of it here and there. If you could condense it down, what's the mission and how are you going to get the mission accomplished? Yeah, but I go back to that kind of piece, you know, that we want to make sure you have access to public lands and waters and the fish and water habitat when you get there. And so, you know, making sure that we... You know, the 640 acres that everybody listening to this owns, and, you know, whether that's, um, you know, national forests right there in South Carolina, national right. wildlife refuges. Um, when you think about, like, the Carolina Sandhills National Wildlife Refuge yep. or the Sumter National Wildlife, the National Forest, that belongs to you all in South Carolina, but it also belongs to me living here in Montana. That's right. Just like the Bob Marshall, you know, wilderness, which is my favorite place in the world, belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. So I think the first piece is just maintaining what we have and then, you know, helping uh, increase the chat and, and, and opportunities there. I think the second part of that is, is, is really trying to grow the estate. You know, I think this outdoor economy that we have um, that is based on public lands and public waters, you know, the more that we have opportunities to get out, um, that economy just gets better. There's the you know, kind of whole recreation side of that piece, the solace, the challenge, the adventure that I think is all important. Um, but really, you know, I think it's about growing that estate and maintaining it. And so whether that's from a local level, you know, working on, um, you know, at a ranger district level, working on child management plans to, you know, a regional level, looking at really kind of how a watershed uh, should work and, and can function. And then all the way out to Washington, D.C., you know, we're really looking at broad-based policies that affect everybody. And so I think, you know, all those levels, places for people to engage. Um, one of the things that, you know, I haven't talked about yet, but I will, is that, you know, we 
when we first started, when I first got here, we'd probably do four or five work projects a year. You know, we're doing repairing, cleanups, rolling up fence, um, whatever that is. And, uh, you know, last year during public lands month, which is September, I think we had 60, over 60 different kind of uh, projects um, on public lands. So that's something that we're increasingly doing more of. It's another way for people to kind of get their hands dirty. Um, but, you know, the, the fun part that you asked about, I kind of yeah. talked about, is something I think that sets uh, PHA apart in a big way. And you know, really don't do the sit-down kind of traditional banquets. You know, I think those are all very effective. Uh, what we do is we're trying to put you know, a little bit more fun back into into fundraising and, and really kind of bringing people together. And so we start with, like, pint nights. Right. Pint nights can you know, range from 10 to 15 people getting together to 300 people getting together, you know, depending on kind of where we are. Um, but that's really just about building community, you know, and coming in and having conversations about, you know, the latest and greatest on plans of public water, sharing a pint, sharing some stories. Um, and then, you know, I think that gets into our, our storytelling. So we partnered up with Filson uh, Clothing this year, and we've been doing storytelling events all around the country where people get up on stage and, you know, tell eight to ten minute story about, uh, you know, about their adventures and their challenges on, on public land. And these range from very funny to very serious, you know, kind of stories. And so that's a big one. And then, you know, I think food. Food is a way to really, I think, engage people in a con- conversation. And so, you know, we've been doing, uh, you know, wild game cook-offs all across the country. We had one this year at Rendezvous. Yep. We just had one in Pennsylvania when I was there. Um, and, uh, and then we have a big field to table kind of dinner that, that we do at Rendezvous, you know, a bunch of chefs come in and it's kind of a bit to do. And, and now we've started kind of a blog there. So I think all those things, um, and I'm leaving out Brewfest and other things <laughs> we're doing, but it's really bringing people together to try to have fun, you know, in our public lands film festival, another one, it's just like a fun thing um, for, for people to gather, um, and then find out more about what we're doing and help engage them. Absolutely. Well, look, let's take a quick break. Come back. We'll get into more of uh, what we need to talk about about BHA and more with Land Tony. So, folks, hang on with more Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Woods and Water South Carolina. We are talking with Land Tawney from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And, uh, Land, in the first segment, you did a real good job of talking about yourself, how you arrived at this point, what BHA stands for, what the purpose is, where they're trying to go with all this. And there's a, if you, as I go and look at a lot of websites, and, and I did some research, actually not just the last day, but I've been researching BHA for a while, um, Fair Chase often comes up, especially when you get guys talking around the campfire, like, like what you what we talked about earlier, you get a bunch of guys right. and, and ideas will come up and and one that's often discussed and it's on your website. It's on and I asked the same question for Steve Ranella a month or so ago. Uh, de- what is Land Tawny's definition of fair chase? Yeah, you know, I think it's a uh, it's a hard one to really define. You know, I think that you know, I think people's fair chase ethics. I think everybody's probably got you know, a different maybe view of that and, you know, what that um, means in different situations. I would say that, like, the best definition that I've ever heard that I think um, is really where I sit at it is from Eric Nivison. He'd be the, you know, the executive director of the International Hunter Education Association, uh-huh. former game warden. He's now on our New England board. Um, just 
somebody that's super thoughtful about this stuff also is with the Orion the Hunters Institute. And one of the things that he said is that, you know, that animal doesn't care if it gets shot, you know, <laughs> at a mile. It doesn't care if it gets shot at 50 yards. Like, it's still dead. Right. So this, like, idea of fair chase isn't necessarily about what's, you know, fair to that animal necessarily. It's more about what's, like, fair to the hunt. And so I think, like, when we think about, like, fair chase, you know, I, th- I always try to think about, is this fair to the hunt? Like, are you still, is technology or some other kind of advantage, is that giving you so much of an advantage that it's really not fair to the quote-unquote hunt? And I think that there's, again, I think there's many nuances within that that, you know, get talked about, like you say, around the campfires. Mm-hmm. I also think that there's some things that just don't pass the smell test, and I give you two. Um, I think the first one really is is hunting with like drones or scouting with drones you know and as as drones become uh i think more user friendly cheaper and more highly technical you know come out into the kind of civilian kind of uh i guess opportunities and you know warden started talking to us about people how we people were using them for hunting mm-hmm. and 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 to us that was just something that was super egregious didn't pass the smell test and so we worked with state agencies and state legislative bodies all across the country to ban the use of drones for hunting during hunting season, um, hunting or scouting. And, you know, it's very similar, I think, to uh, the rules and regulations on airplanes. Sure. problem about an airplane, mm-hmm. or I guess the problem about a drone is you can, you know, you can hear an airplane a long ways away. A drone, you kind of have to be, it has to be kind of right on top of you. And right. So um, the idea of kind of banning them throughout the entire hunting season I think it's been one that's been widely accepted and they really haven't gotten pushback from. So I think that's a big one. Uh, the next one is probably a little bit more controversial and it really comes to high hunts. And, you know, to me, you know, I've grown up in Montana where we used to have high fence hunting and that wasn't hunting to me. You know, it was, it was, it was really just shooting and to call that hunting um, and call that fair day's pursuit just didn't make any sense to me. And, you know, we got, we got rid of that through a ballot initiative process here in Montana. Um, but, you know, there's these shooting operations that are happening, you know, across the country. And I, I think, you know, if people want to do that, I think it's not, it's not, again, doesn't pass the smell test for me. Sure. Um, but if people want to do that. They can do that. Just don't call it hunting. Right. Just going out there and you're basically going out and shooting a cow. And right. Like when you, if you wanted to have a bunch of beefsteak in your freezer <laughs> and you went to the local rancher and you said, I want that cow and you went and shot it. You're not going to call that hunting. I don't think you should call it, you know, hunting, you know, white tails and elk behind fences hunting either. Sure. And so um, that's kind of, you know, I think those are two um, that I look at uh, in particular and kind of like that fair chase that uh, don't pass the smell test and other things that we should, we should we should really look at. And it's funny how this all comes back around because a true hunt has a story attached to it. And it doesn't, Absolutely. that hunt doesn't have to be successful. You know, success as a hunter is you, you you know, bringing home the meat or whatever. But a, a good hunt has a good story, and it doesn't always have to be about an animal. Yeah, you know, and I think, I mean, as you mentioned the story, you know, I think that, um, you know, when somebody shoots, let's say, the big elk and, you know, at an Idaho game farm, and they go home and they're sitting around and they're talking to their friends about it and they got that head up on the wall. I guarantee you they're not telling me about this story about, yeah, well, I paid $16,000 <laughs> no. for this one. I could have had this one for 14000 I bought this one. And you don't see the ear tag because they took that out. Right. And, you know, I mean, just like they don't tell that story. They tell something no. else or they don't yeah. tell it at all. 
And so I think that story about the trials and tribulations and the you know the ups and downs and the, just the adventure and challenge and solitude, all that stuff that is part of the hunt and why I think you know you hunt and I hunt. That's the part that I think we need to be telling, and I think that's something that we get away with from those kind of cute hunts. Yep, you're exactly right. Some of the best stories I know don't involve a gun and shooting. It's what happened, you know, going and coming (laughs) sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, we, we, public land, I, I, you know, I I booked an airline ticket the other day, uh, one way, because I'm actually, my brother's driving out in September to, uh, I forget where he's going hunting in Colorado, but he calls me up and says, Hey, I'm driving out by myself. Uh, want to tag along and we'll hook up a couple days fishing. So, I'm jumping in the truck with him in September. We're driving out to, I think we're going to end up around Gunnison somewhere and then run up to Granby. And then I caught a airline ticket home from Denver. And it's, you know, other than a $32 or $31.75 fishing license for Colorado, I'm going to be accessing some of the most premier trout waters you can get to. And it's, everyone's it's yours it's mine it's everybody that's listening today they can get in the same truck well don't get in the same truck with us but they can get in a truck and drive out there and uh and do the same thing i'm going to do it's it's not it's 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 that simple isn't it it is that simple you know and i think that you know that we uh you know we live like kings right yes like i grew up here in montana and i have a lot of access to uh you know private like private uh uh, ranches and stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I literally, I don't utilize that hardly at all. I utilize the public land that we have here in the state, and it's probably because of the ease that I have. You know, it doesn't, I don't need a reservation most of the time. You know, some, I guess there's some camp spots that I want to get to um, that I have to have a reservation for, but the majority of time, it's just me deciding that's where I want to go, and it's available to everybody. You know, I was, this last week, I took off, I've been traveling way too much, and I took off and spent some time on the river, and you know, I had six days that were out, and I was, you know, camping at a camp spot for six bucks a night. You know, there was uh, another spot that I camped at that I didn't have to pay anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm having these, like, seven, eight-hour days on this river that <laughs> I feel like I, I keep looking around, you know, almost like, you know, somebody's going to tell me I can't be there. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're, you know, we're going to celebrate Fourth of July and you know, the independence that we have and the independence from kind of the tyranny across the pond. Right. And part of that journey was the public lands, you know, there wasn't public lands for the people, and the wildlife did not belong to the people. Right. And, you know, we really, the founders of this country, they wanted things to be different, and we've carried that forward. And, man, how special is that? And there's not anywhere else in the world. There's places that come close, you know, New Zealand, Canada. Um, but America is totally different, and none of that happened by accident. You know, these are people that had foresight, whether that's our forefathers when they started the country, or, you know, the late 1800s with the Boone and Crockett Club and, and Roosevelt. And then you have the Aldo Leopolds, the Rachel Carsons of the world. And all those people, and a bunch that we don't know their names, have sure. led us to this legacy that we have now. And, man, I just, that's why I love doing what I do is because it's <laughs> such a unique kind of experiment. Yes. That is not, there's no place else in the world. And, like, I think there's some pride in that, some ownership. And then I think there's really a... Um, and necessity to be engaged in that process. You know, it's kind of hard for a lot of people here in the southeast, where you know, public land, public land is, in comparison, not non-existent, but it's it's hard to get to. You know, there's not much of it. Uh, you know, we do have the Francis Marion, we do have the uh, Sumter National Forest, 
I think it's more unpublished than anything else that it's out there and you can take advantage of it. Whereas out west, it's everywhere. There's so much of it out there, and it's kind of a disconnect. But I think more and more people here are realizing, you know, even even if they just want to go up to the Chattooga River, you know, that's that's public land up there. You can go up there, you can hike, you can camp, you can fish. Uh, there's more and more of it if you search for it and find it. And I think that's um, that's something that people are starting to wake up to, especially with some of the high-profile issues in Washington and all that have come up in the last couple of years about public land. Would you agree with that one? I would totally agree. You know, and I think, you know, some people ask me sometimes, like, what is the biggest threat to, you know, our hunting and fishing traditions? And I would say apathy um, and maybe, like, and then and then uneducation. So maybe put those two things together. And so, the, you know, people don't know a lot of times, you know, where their public lands came from, how they got here. And so it's just like kind of an education piece there. Um, the apathy part is that they're always going to be here and, you know, there's no threats to them. And and I think that, you know, that's our job really at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is to really educate folks on kind of where they came from and kind of where they're at now and how we get them forward. And so, you know, when things happen out in Washington, D.C., you know, Congressman Chaffetz from Utah, uh, this was three years ago now, tried to sell uh, 3.3 million acres of public lands and just in one fell swoop. And that's, you know, every American's public lands. And, um, you know, the ire and the kind of uh, pushback that he felt when he introduced that bill was pretty extreme. And, and, you know, we helped kind of fuel that fire a little bit. And, you know, within a week, Mr. Chaffetz pulled back his support of that bill. Sure. And, you know, I haven't seen that kind of energy. I haven't seen, you know, a politician ever introduce a bill one week and then pull their support for it the next. And so, to me, um, you know, that was really an important kind of piece, and, that, and let the people know. You know, a lot of people think that their voice doesn't count in this country, and I think that's part of that apathy kind of piece. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, if you have a voice and you're not using it, well, of course, you know, it doesn't count. Yeah. And so, what we're again, we're trying to do is try to, you know, create opportunities for people to get engaged, and then also to, you know, use our megaphone as an organization and try to, you know blow their voices up all across the country as well. And I think so far we've been fairly effective with that. And, you know, the larger we grow, you know, about 37,000 members now, we're a much bigger um, voice than we were six years ago when we had 1,000. Absolutely. Well, uh, we're running up against the bottom of the hour. Some good stuff. Uh, man, I don't know where we go from here, but we're going to try to go here after the break. Uh, but there are some more things that I want to talk about. And we got, we got a big win for conservation that just – went through the House and the Senate that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the pint nights and what happens there because we've got one coming up here in Fountain Inn just a couple of weeks from now. And uh, so, Lan, if you'll hang on through the break, we'll be back, and we'll finish up what has been a great interview. Hang on, more Woods and Water South okay. on the other side. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. It is a great day here on the show. We're talking with Lan Tawney from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Covered a lot of ground. Uh, got a little bit more to cover. I hope you'll um, I hope you'll listen to this. 
if you're like me, you're an outdoorsman. You've been a member of practically every organization that's out there. All the, all the, the you know the an acronyms and and all in land. I actually went on this morning and joined BHA. Oh yes, you did. That's I awesome. did. So, <laughs> so yeah, you you have a new member of BHA on, and and you know I. Like I said, I if there for a few years, I was a member of everything I could be a member of. And you just kind of get burned out on all the magazines, all the, the fundraising stuff and all. And, and I just kind of let everything drop. And one by one, I'm picking up the ones that really, you know, while I love ducks, and I'll get back into that at some point, you know, there, there are certain core core um, organizations I think you need to be a part of. Because if you don't have somebody like BHA, you don't have duck hunting. Because you don't have the public land, you don't have the, the wetlands and all that, or the public access. But um, anyway, we talked about a lot. You said something during the break. Um, public lands. You get in a lot. You didn't get to talk enough about it belonging to everyone. We're here in the southeast. You know, I've got my eighty acres. I've got my ten acres. I got my twelve acres. Well, you know, how many millions of acres do we all own out there around the United States? Yeah, we own six hundred and forty million acres. These are like federally managed public lands. And Let so, what I love about that piece is it doesn't matter, you know, who your parents are. It doesn't matter how much money you made last year. You know, you could be a New York tycoon. You could be a school teacher from South Carolina, and you're on the same footing. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent. You know, that land belongs to all of us, and all it really cares about is if you got, you know, two feet and you can get out <laughs> on it. And so, um, to me, it's, uh, you know, I think there couldn't be anything more American than that. You know, you think about apple pie. Well, I like huckleberry pie. Okay. Um, you think about baseball, right? You know, yeah. and I think that, like, I like baseball during the playoffs. <laughs> I'm going to see it live. Um but I think this uniquely American trait that is our public land, I think, you know, especially the way we kind of manage them, there couldn't be anything more American. So uh, be proud of that, celebrate that, um, let's figure out how to protect it. That is, and, and, you know, you think about it, that's kind of a a number that's hard to wrap your head around to some people, but it is. It's And it's scattered throughout. I mean, you know, the through the Midwest. The West is where everybody thinks it all is, but it's scattered throughout the United States. And... Um, and it's just a drive away, a drive away. It is, and I was looking just before we had this interview, I and mean, they think you guys have like about 11.8% of your land base there in South Carolina is federally managed public land. That's it. And, you know, you think about like beach access and stuff that I know is becoming, you know, more of an issue there, is that, you know, that's stuff that belongs to you, and it didn't happen by accident. And, you know, how are we going to maintain that? It's like people, you know, listening to this, probably going to members of BHA and, and, and really using their voice. Yep. And a, and a voice is a vote. When it, Absolutely. When it boils down Absolutely. to it, a voice is a vote. Um, yeah, politicians, you know, they, they want to hear from their constituents. You know, that, that example we gave earlier about, you know, Congressman Chaffetz, it's not like he woke up the next day and was like, nah, maybe that was a bad idea. He heard from the people. And he heard from the people in a really strong way. And so, you know, as a good politician should, he should listen to the people because that's who they represent. And he switched his stance. And I think, you know, that's what's important for all of us. BHA, what are, what are some of the members, what are some of the chapters do uh, in their local communities in their states that, that benefit everybody at the state level? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I mean, I talk about maybe a couple different places. When I talk about some defense, so down in Iowa this year, we had a brand-new chapter. They just came on. That's a state that's about 2% public land. Um, there was some legislation that was being proposed to, 
uh, say that they could have no net gain of public land ever. And so that 2% was always going to stay at 2%. And so that chapter down there rallied people. They went to the state legislature. They went to... Um, uh, they went to the sports shows, and they got a bunch of people to push back, and ultimately, you know, killed that piece of legislation that would, have, you know, stopped the additions of any new public land. Um, so that's one. I think that you know our Ohio chapter in particular is really engaged, along with Wisconsin, in chronic wasting disease. And yes. you know, as chronic wasting disease is mm-hmm. spread across this country, and the unfortunate pieces is not a matter of if; it's a matter of kind of when it will be coming near you. And, you know, they're really starting to figure out how to address this or try to at least think about that and how you manage this in the best way. And so, you know, those chapters are, you know, doing things from having dumpsters where people can dispose of carcasses so they don't spread CWD to working at the state legislature to working with state fish and game agencies. And so, you know, it's, it's their opportunity to get engaged. I think, you know, we've talked about, so these are kind of like the policy pieces or the getting your hands dirty kind of pieces. There's also kind of like the, the fundraising aspects of our organization and really the pint nights. And um, I know you guys got one coming up there mm-hmm. in South Carolina, but pint nights, you know, are, are really easy to put on, you know, at the very minimum. You know, you just bring people together to have a, a beverage and, and talk. Um, you know, the ones that are bigger, that are two or 300 people, those take a little bit more to put together. But, you know, this is really going someplace middle of the week, um, bringing people together, um, super family friendly, and just having conversations about um, what our organization is and how people can get engaged. Hike to Hunt. Talk a minute about that one. <laughs> so Hike to Hunt is something we started three years ago, really as a way to create more awareness around public land, um, to help people get in shape, you know, before hunt season. <laughs> and to raise a little bit of money. And and so this is our third year. Um, we have a goal of you know hiking 50,000 miles of everybody that's participating. I think we have almost 1,500 people participating. We're almost to our goal of 50,000 um, miles hiked. I think we're at like 35. Okay. And so, you know, really, basically, you use this Under Armour app called Map My Hike. And, you know, you set that right before you take your hike and you keep track. Um, I've got a goal, an audacious goal of 400 miles this year, a few months, which um, (laughs) quite a lot. I've done 161 to date. Um, And so I'm a little bit off pace. Uh, Only got a month left. But uh, it's just a, you know, it's a great way to get in shape. It's a great way to build community and a great way to build awareness around these, you know, great public lands and public waters that we have. You know, we talk about causes and and what you're trying to do and all. I, I guess every good interview ends on a high note, and uh, I think the high note for this one would be the the permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Absolutely. So for those who don't know what the Land and Water Conservation Fund is, it was established in 1964. Uh, it was basically a bunch of oil and gas development was started in the Gulf of Mexico and the wise vision of Folks back then said, hey, we're taking away from one resource, let's give back to another. And so that legislation passed, I believe, out of the Senate 99 to 1 um, back in 1964. And it's been used in every single county in America. You know, think baseball fields, think swimming pools, but also think like conservation areas, um, think uh, fishing access sites. It's the number one access tool in this country. Okay. And so it's been used since 1964, um, again, in every single county in America. And, um, you know, it was unfortunately at sunset this last September, September 30th. And, and again, the people, you know, knew about this fund and, and decided that they wanted to call their senators and make this a priority. And 
so it was one of the first things that they did when they came back from the shutdown. It was contained in a you know larger public land bill that was about 700 pages. It had a bunch of you know great projects all across the country, but in it was permanent permanent uh, reauthorization of the land and water conservation fund. So no longer or ever again sunset, and so it'll be available. And you know what a great win that was. I think for you know folks all across this country. But what I think was even more telling was really the votes. You know, I talked about that vote back in 64 that was 99 to 1. Right. They voted 92 to 8 in the Senate and then 363 to 62 in the House. And if you watch our politics right now, they can't agree on anything <laughs> and, and, and let alone have overwhelming votes like that. And sure. so to me, it was a really good indication. And again, that kind of bipartisan nature, um, of our nonpartisan nature, I would say, of public lands and sure. public waters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it's a place that, that we can come together and hopefully start to, you know, bring some civility back in this country. I and mean, maybe that's where we start is on public land. So to me, um, great vote. The only thing that did not do, it did not fully fund um, the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Right. Um, and so now we're looking at, you know, legislation to get that done, hopefully before the end of the year. But, you know, we don't get wins, you know, like uh, all the time, you know, in our space. And this is a gigantic one. So it's one, you know, to kind of raise a glass across the country around is permanent reauthorization for the number one access tool in this country, which is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Very good. I love one of the stickers. If you go to the BHA website and, and you can join right there on the website, it's pretty seamless. If I can do it, most everybody else can do it. Uh, they have a store there. Get yourself a hat. I'm, I'm planning to go back on and I can't couldn't decide on which hats so i punted until later um but there's a great there's a great bumper sticker on there that i fell in love with it's the back country where roads in and adventure begins and, absolutely and that's pretty much a definition of our public lands where that road ends, I would have, yep. where there's a, where there's a pull off a turnaround a gate that allows you to park get on your own two feet and when you cross that line or you get into those woods or on that trail Keep your eyes up, get your head up, because the adventure is just just that close. Yeah, what a great closing! And what I love about that is that adventure that can be, you know, on a hundred acres, that can be on a thousand acres, that can be on a million acres. It's all kind of like a state of mind and kind of, you know, where your head's at. So that was an awesome kind of piece there, and thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> well, Land, I appreciate you doing this for me. I hate it took us two years to do it, but I think timing worked just fine. We will uh, do this again, and hopefully this next rendezvous, I'll be there. Awesome. We're coming to my hometown, Missoula, Montana, one through four, so try to make it a priority. I will do that, Land. Thank you very much, and take care of yourself. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Roger. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. Great interview, great guy. I, if you if you're on social media or whatever, you can follow me. He, he lives it. I mean, last week he was out on the river frying up trout in the pan and eating them for supper, which is uh, as good as it gets in the outdoors. Let me tell you what: fresh trout right next to the campsite. Um, let's see. I, I want to do a calendar of events right quick. If you're yeah, that's my problem, not yours. So anyway, the calendar is brought to you by Visit Anderson Green Pond Landing and Event Center. And this is just a place for you to start. It's not by any means complete because I can't get to everything every week, but I get to a little bit of it. 
as I can. Uh, yes, the South Carolina Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Pint Night is going to be Saturday, July the 20th from 6 to 9 at Orion's Bar and Grill in Fountain Inn, South Carolina. Like I said, I, like I was talking with Land, I don't know. I've got, we're supposed to be at the Governor's Cup Billfish Tournament down at Edisto that weekend, depending on the weather, because I was supposed to be the one in Mount Pleasant, and the weather was really bad, so I didn't go down. So that could be at this one in uh, Fountain Inn, which would be kind of fun. I'd like to be there. And you heard Land say it's just a it's a time for like minded people to get together and just talk. I love the campfire thing. At uh, at at the rendezvous, they have a big campfire storytelling night, and that I understand that was really cool this year. Maybe next year I'll get to make it out. So pint night BHA July twentieth found in the South Carolina Wildlife Federation is having their wild summer nights auction and wild game feast. Saturday, July 20th from 6 to 10 p.m. at Seawalls Catering, Seawells Catering in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, wild game, wild items, wild times. To a crowd of nearly 400 people, we'll be auctioning off just about anything anyone could ever want. Works of art, jewelry, guided birding, and wildlife watching trips, hunting and fishing excursions, both in South Carolina and other amazing places. Guided river and kayak tours, hunting and fishing equipment, and much more. Event will include live and silent auction, prize drawings, and games, wild game feast, open bar, and much more. Um, SCWF is a nonprofit organization, so uh, it's it's a good and they and they sponsor one of the other. Is it is it? Hang on a second. Let me look back here just a second. I think they sponsor one. Of the, they do. We'll get to that in a minute. But they sponsor another great event that I'm going to talk about in the calendar. So this is an opportunity for you to uh, get involved. It's business casual attire. And uh, the food begins at 7.30. If you're interested, go to the SCWF web uh, homepage and uh, get more information there about where you can get your tickets. The uh, Woodrunner School of Survival is having another edition of Introduction to Survival, July 23rd, 2019. Uh, The endurance rating is easy. It's a one-day course. An introduction to survival course designed for participants of varying skill, experience levels, and backgrounds. Uh, it's an introduction designed for, ten, like I just said, in backgrounds. No prerequisites required. The only requirements to take this course are the need for survival instruction and a positive attitude. Focusing on basic survival skills and using components of a survival kit, our instructors show what it takes to survive. The course is a great way to gain knowledge, earn skills, build confidence, and become more confident, comfortable in the outdoors. Uh, what do you? What should you expect? Well, expect to learn something. What's covered in the course? Awareness. What to do before heading into the backcountry? Survival preparation. Uh, survival priorities. Survival mindset. Protection from the elements. Shelter and clothing. Fire starting and maintaining a fire. Water filtration and purification. Knife selection. Safety and carving skills. And essential knots. It's for ages ten and over. And the program can accommodate groups of any size by special arrangement and pricing. So, go to the Woodrunner School of Self-Reliance, which is right down here in Clinton, South Carolina, and uh, reserve your spot. The Bamberg County Chamber, the South Fork and Edisto River Canoe and Kayak Trips continue. Uh, The next one is August the 3rd. The launch is at 9 a.m. at Brabham Landing. And uh, free shuttle service will be provided for the monthly Chamber River Trips. Donations accepted. $10 $10 a year is recommended, and this is sponsored by the Battenberg County Chamber of Commerce. For more information and to register, uh, info at bambergcountychamber.org. How's that? 
uh, I guess you could just go to the Bamberg County Chamber of Commerce and find it there. But Saturday, August 3rd is the next one. And um, South Fork and Edison, that's one of those things I'm going to do. Two events for women that are coming up here in South Carolina that are really from year to year. I, this one, actually, this one's new. The second one is one that I I forget until it's too late, but I've already made some emails, uh, sent some emails uh, about these this year because I want to talk about them in depth. Um, but the first one is sponsored by the South Carolina Wildlife Federation. It is the Women's Outdoor Retreat 2019. It's going to be September the 27th, which is a Friday. Through Sunday, September the 29th, it's going to be at Hickory Knob State Park, which is down in McCormick, South Carolina. And, it, it, okay, just to give you a – well, I don't want to give you a rundown on this one. Just stay tuned because there's more information coming on this one. And the other one that's added for women this year is uh, Table Rock State Park. It's actually a South Carolina State Parks event. It's the Women's Outdoor Adventure Weekend, November 15th through the 17th. It's a save the date. There's no information on it yet. But I got this one off of the uh, Palmetto Conservation Foundation website. So we'll. Uh, I'm trying to get someone from each one of these events to come on and talk about it. Because, hey, moms, sisters, wives, you're important in the outdoors too. And we want to get you out there and involved just as much as we get the guys out there. So stay tuned because I am going to have some more information on both of those weekends to come. And like I said, the calendar is just a place for – it's just a start. There's so much going on in the outdoors in South Carolina that's not even funny. And I can't get to it all. And it's really frustrating. We'll work on that. Patience. I'll get there one day when all I have to do is just go and do. The uh, A couple weeks ago, I guess, we wrapped up the inaugural season of Major League Fishing. And they were in uh, – Fishing Lake Winnebago one day, Lake Butamont the next day, and then Green Lake, I think, the fourth day. And for the South Carolina guys, it was a pretty good year. Uh, four of our South Carolina anglers left the, let's see, three left the Elite Series, two left FLW and went to uh, MLF. That would be Andy Montgomery, Casey Ashley, and Marty Robinson left the Elites and went to MLF. Andy, Anthony Gagliardi and Britt Myers left FLW and went to the MLF. And they, they had a pretty good year. The top 30 of the eight tournaments made the Red Crest this year. So we had two. Casey Ashley in 13th place made the Red Crest. Andy Montgomery in 15th made the Red Crest. Uh, first man out was Anthony Gagliardi in 32nd place. He uh, was out by 10 points. And I know that's going to kill him. I, I'm going to talk to him uh, about it. And hopefully we're going to do a show with him um, here shortly. But I know he had an 80th place finish, with a little dead last finish in Raleigh. And I know, knowing him, he <laughs> he is beating himself up about that tournament finish. But uh, and then Marty Robinson finished up 44th, and Britt Myers finished up 77th. So you know, first year for everything. They um, it'd be interesting to see as I get them on over the next few months because their season's done. Well, I guess they're not done. They've got. One more cup left to go. I guess the, as far as I know, they fished one. They may have fished two. So they may have a couple more cups this summer to fish because for every two events, like stage, they call them stages, for stage one and two, there was a cup for the top 30. Stage two, three and four, there was a cup for the top 30. So I don't know how many of those cups have been fished. I know one of them has been. So they have that, and then they got the Red Crest. But as I get them on over the next few months, it'll be interesting to, to get each one of them's take on the first season. I know they're all excited going in, and, We'll catch up to all of them and see how they 
how their decision turned out. The Bassmaster Top 100 came out, and Lake Hartwell didn't make it, if you can believe that. Uh, I was talking to Neil Paul about it, and <laughs> we don't see how it didn't make it. Uh, some of the lakes were still on for 2018, like Santee Cooper, uh, Lake Murray. Uh, those were the lakes in South Carolina that made it from 2018. Along with you know some of the other southeastern lakes like Chickamauga, uh, Lake Seminole, Pickwick, Gunnersville, you know Toho. I don't see how Toho made it. There's fish down there so so skinny. I guess at least in the summertime it is. But there were some new ones on there. Lake Watery, South Carolina made this list. Um, Clark's Hill is new this year, and if you remember, Lake Lanier in Georgia is new this year. So. It's interesting to see the, uh, and and if you go back and crunch the numbers, why some of these are on here. But yeah, Lake Hartwell's not, and, and the folks down in Visit Anderson are not happy, not happy. Um, we talk a lot about the impact of hunting and fishing and uh, target sports has in the United States, and this is, I think, this is from 2016 because the last time the data was available. Driving the U.S. economy, 53.4 million Americans take part in recreational fishing, hunting, and target shooting each year. Collectively, those sportsmen and women help drive the U.S. economy, spending $93.7 billion on gear, motorboat fuel, licenses, travel, clothing, and more. Consumer spending by hunters, anglers, and target shooters support over 1.6 million jobs to the tune of $71.8 billion in salaries. These activities contributed $119 billion to the GDP, the U.S. GDP in 2016. America's 13.3 million hunters and 32 million target shooters add $55.4 billion to the GDP. Those activities provide 854,000 jobs. Meanwhile, America's $45.8 million, 45.8 million anglers contributed $63.5 billion to the nation's GDP. GDP and those expenditures supported 802,000 jobs. Pretty impressive numbers for a bunch of guys who like to go fishing and hiking and hunting. Have you heard about this one? This is funny. Staten Island, New York, implemented a, a deer vasectomy program three years ago. $4.1 million is having very little effect. After three years of snipping, $4.1 million worth of deer vasectomies have trimmed the Staten Island's randy deer herd down by a grand total of 316 animals. The City Parks Department trumpeted a downward trend in overall population after White Buffalo. What an apt name for this whole project. The contract that has sterilized 1,577 bucks released a no, new population count of 1,737 deer in the borough, saying that boroughs have decreased sharply. That means taxpayers have spent $12,975 ahead to shave 15% off the huge herd. <laughs> Only in New York City. Only in New York City. They've still caused 103 accidents on Staten Island's roads in 2018, an all-time high, and crashes that injured 17 humans. Cases of Lyme disease, which is carried by deer ticks, jumped by 250% since 2012. <laughs> Just let a hunter take care of the problem. We are the conservationists. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. Back next week with more Woods and Water South Carolina. Probably an ICAST show. Stay tuned for that one. In the meantime, take the back roads when you can. Make time to get out there and don't forget the camera. Back next week with more Woods and Water South Carolina.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.